My guest today is a true inspiration to me and many others. His life is simply amazing, and no description that I can write will come close to providing you with a full understanding of the accomplishments, career, personality, and the man himself. I grew up in a small town in West Virginia, very close to where our guest is from. I can identify with a lot of his personal story and the trials and tribulations he overcame in becoming the man he is today. He lists General Chuck Yeager, another native of West Virginia, as one of his personal heroes, and I'm proud to say that our guest himself is one of mine. Mr. Homer Hickam is a veteran of the United States Army, a former NASA engineer, and member of the U.S. National Space Council. Prior to his NASA career, Mr. Hickam served in the U.S. Army as a lieutenant after volunteering to serve during Vietnam, where he was awarded the Army Commendation Medal and the Bronze Star. After leaving the U.S. Army with the rank of captain, Mr. Hickam went to work for the Army Missile Command as a federal civilian on the Hellfire Missile Program and later NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. During his NASA career, Mr. Hickam worked in spacecraft design and crew training. His specialties at NASA included training astronauts on science payloads and extravehicular activities. He also trained astronaut crews for many space lab and space shuttle missions, including the Hubble Space Telescope deployment mission, the first two Hubble repair missions, Space Lab J, which was the first Japanese astronaut, and the Solar Max repair missions. Mr. Hickam is currently the board chair of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, also known as Space Camp, in Huntsville, Alabama. Prior to his retirement in 1998, Mr. Hickam was the payload training manager for the International Space Station program. Mr. Hickam's autobiography, Rocket Boys, was turned into the movie October Sky, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Mr. Hickam was appointed to the National Space Council's User Advisory Group in 2018, which assists U.S. government agencies like NASA organize and coordinate their space efforts. So without further ado, let's bring in my very special guest, Mr. Homer Hickam. Mr. Hickam, thank you for joining us today. Well, hey, Jeremy, it's great to be with you, a fellow West Virginian. I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I uh, I wasn't born in West Virginia, but I grew up there through my formative years and uh, 
it's uh the place is like a magnet you know when when you're there you're you're dying to get out but once you leave you're dying to get back it's uh it always it always brings you around full circle somehow well it does um uh, you know it just seems like that uh, west virginia's greatest export is its people uh we get raised there um we learn a lot about hard times and about how to overcome hard times if you will yes and then we go out to the world and try to teach others uh how to overcome hard times as well. So it's, uh, it's an incredible population that we have indeed, in West Virginia. Indeed. It absolutely is. So thank you for joining me today. You are a man of uh, incredible accomplishments. Uh, your, your life story is uh, pretty well known through your, your books and your movies. Uh, and uh, you have a, another book coming out. Uh, if it hasn't come out already, uh, don't blow yourself up. Uh, <laughs> I believe it's, it's called, and I have a, uh, a link here down at the bottom for anybody who's interested in, uh, in taking a look uh, and purchasing your book. Uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about that, that book? Yeah, Don't Blow Yourself Up is the true sequel to Rocket Boys or October Sky. It, it came out in late October. It's done very well. It's already on its second printing. Matter of fact, I just happen to have a copy of it here. Uh, don't blow yourself up and don't blow yourself up. The title comes from um, when I first uh, got interested in the space business back when the Russians launched Sputnik in 1957 um, at the kitchen table. Uh, we would go around the kitchen table and my, everybody would have to tell my mom what we did that day and what we were going to do the next day. And when it got to be my turn, um, because I was so enamored by seeing Sputnik fly through the night sky, uh, the, that October night sky, I said, uh, I'm going to build a rocket. And uh, my dad, uh, he was probably thinking about something that happened up at the mine, so he didn't say anything. My brother, my older brother, who was the big football star and got all the girls, uh, he just laughed. He thought that was just another stupid thing that his little brother would do. But my mom took a long look at me, and she said, well, don't blow yourself up. And uh, I took that as permission for everything that happened <laughs> since. So um, <laughs> I thought it was a good title. It, it, kind of, uh, it was a title that a lot of people quote from the book and the movie. And um, the, the new memoir is the 40 years after the Rocket Boys era, which included that time at Virginia Tech where um, a few other cadets and I built the, the skipper, the big cannon. And mm -hmm. then the, uh, the, uh, and I graduated from engineering school and then the Vietnam War and then working um, underwater, scuba diving and then NASA and then writing the book Rocket Boys and then the movie October Sky. So I ended there 40 years, 1960 to 2000. So that's what uh, that's what the new memoir is all about. Now, are we going to expect a uh, a film to come out of this uh, this new book? <laughs> I doubt it. I mean, uh, let me just tell you. Yeah, I, I see a lot a lot of times on Facebook or Twitter or whatever about a um, uh, an author that says, "Oh my gosh, my book's been optioned. It's been uh, by Hollywood and blah blah." And it's like many books are optioned, but very very few are made. It's really a miracle sure. to get a movie, a major motion picture made out of one of your books. So I, I didn't write it from expecting anything like that. Uh, some of the other uh, books, though, um, Sky of Stone almost got made into a Hallmark movie. And oh, uh, wow. The Coldwood Way is always, they're always talking about, let's make a Christmas story out of The Coldwood Way. Uh, we'll see. But I kind of had my Hollywood miracle, and I'm satisfied with that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, now that this show is, is primarily a science and, and UFO based uh, podcast, <clears throat> excuse me. 
I was I was doing some background research on you for a while before this show uh, came about, and I ran across a quote from you, and and I'm paraphrasing because I I have a horrible memory, but you had said something about the fact that that uh, we were talking about government bureaucracy that you had you had met the government or you had worked in the government and it was it was a nightmarish quagmire or or something to that effect and and i wanted to touch on the ideas that we're going through now in disclosure process and why the u.s government is now talking a little bit more about ufos and uaps than they have in the past and kind of go over what may be considered overclassifications and why a lot of this is redacted and blacked out and buried under mountains of red tape. Uh, I mean, we're all familiar with the ideas of the preservation of national security when it comes to potential foreign adversarial tech or our own technology that we don't necessarily want to get out there. But, you know, even, even recently as, as last week, we had a redacted file come out that was talking about the shapes of UAP and UFOs. And it was completely blacked out and redacted. Do you have any insight on why the government operates the way that they do in, in these scenarios? Well, I think, you know, a lot of times different aspects of the government doesn't talk to other aspects of the government, different bureaucracies don't talk to each other. Um, I know you're way too young for this, but there is actually something called Project Blue Book back in the 1950s, where the Air Force um, had a group that was looking at UFOs and presented some reports on it that uh, sounded very much like that there were cases where they weren't exactly, uh, they couldn't say what they were, and um, they never took the stand that they were alien life forms flying objects through our through our atmosphere but they never said that they weren't either. Sure. Um, so, so we see this going back and forth all the time, um, but it has recently, uh, it just seems like that um, for some reason, our government decided to uh, talk about it more when there was really, uh, we had a couple of cases where they saw these Tic Tacs flying around over the ocean and, and were actually photographed. Uh, part of that, of course, is that we have more capability now to do that. Uh, we've had, sure. We've had um, uh, pilots see things like this for uh, for a very long time, and there's no real good suitable explanation uh, for it. Um, you can hypothesize all you will, but uh, I really don't think that we know what these things are, and um, so I, I don't have any any uh, recent knowledge about these things. Uh, but I do watch watch all the reports with interest. Sure, sure. Now, when you were working with the Army Missile Command and developing or helping to develop the the Hellfire missile program, I understand that the the Hellfire probably wasn't designed with this intent in mind. But did you ever have uh, reason to believe that the United States military was attempting to create weapons that may try to counter some of these technologies that are unexplainable? No, nothing ever came across my desk like that, um, really. Um, essentially what um, the Army Missile Command, which is where I was working, uh, and then later at NASA, what these federal bureaucracies do is work hand in glove with um, uh, commercial companies. Mm -hmm. And so principally what we do over on the federal side is to define 
our requirements. And we okay. spend a lot of time doing that, defining them and refining them. We want this missile to be an anti-tank missile carried by a drone, um, have the capability to search out something movement, uh, fire and scoot and all this uh, different things that we want it to be able to do. But we have to have some knowledge of the technology available in order to do it. But we don't we don't go into deep design, but uh, we do specify. And then the commercial companies pick that up and they make bids on whether they can do it or not, how much it's going to cost and uh, so on and so forth. I never ran across anything that said that we were trying to counter any kind of uh, unknown uh, alien technology, but we don't really have to do that. Um, we are, you know, we've been through this cold war and it seems like, unfortunately, we're about to go through another one. Yeah. Uh, we do have an adversary that is technologically capable and perhaps in some cases uh, more capable than we are. So we're always trying to counter that using whatever technology that we have or can invent. And we're pretty good about inventing uh, new technology in this country for a variety of different reasons. And we, we have that infrastructure. Um, so that that's about as far as I can take you there. Do, do you feel that the uh, the analogy that a lot of people tend to, tend to fall back on saying that uh, military technology is 20 or 30 years more advanced than what the civilians have access to typically, it, does that seem more or less a, a correct uh, assumption? Well, in some cases, I would say it was 100 years ahead. Really? Um, in some cases, it's less than you think. And uh, so there are a lot of... Um, there are a lot of things that um, that we're knowledgeable of that uh, we may or may not ever use. And, what what uh, would be an example of something that would be, if, if you can discuss it, uh, something that would be 100 years more advanced than what the civilians have access to? Oh, camouflage, I would say, as an example. There's a lot of different types of camouflage besides stealth. Sure. Act, you're talking about active that camouflage, you know I'm assuming. So, I'm sorry? Uh, you're talking about active camouflage, I'm assuming. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, being able to be somewhere with something that nobody else can see or have any signature of it uh, at all. Any signature. So there's right. no IR, there's no uh, thermal, there's no visible, there's no EM signatures coming off of this. You're, you're truly invisible to the entire spectra of measurement. Yes. That's incredible. Yeah. And, and, we're much we're much further down the road on that than a lot of people are aware of, which is a little bit scary when you stop to think about it. <laughs> it's it's tremendously scary, but it's it's amazing at the same time, because if if we do have this technology and if we are employing this technology, uh, you know, you have the predator shimmer and things like that, that that people sometimes report in in association with UAF, UFO and UAP phenomena. You're, you're saying that there is a possibility that a lot of this could be uh, military tech. Well, in, in terms of warfare, there is nothing that you want more than to be invisible. Sure. And it's about as far as I can take you on that. And so, um, so yes, I mean, uh, uh, so there are, there are portions of, the in Department of Defense, especially that you're aware of a certain technology and you can't really talk too much about it or even specify it. 
Um, so it really gets complicated when you get when you get into that kind of thing, because uh, if it, you can't be invisible, if somebody knows how you're invisible. Sure. Even if there's well, that's, that's a lot of the issues with the classification process. It's not necessarily not all the time anyway, is is the classification because of the the technology, but it might be because of the processes that would be uncovered if that technology or if that event was declassified. So a lot of the times the classification is due to the process by which that event occurred. Um, so I know, I, you know, we, ha we have issues like the Glomar Explorer, which we designed with Howard Hughes back in the day, which was built uh, by CIA funding to go and recover a sunken uh, Russian nuclear submarine. Everybody knows that the Glomar Explorer existed and it did what, what it did and that we recovered the submarine. But the process by which the CIA created the funding opportunities to create it, that's still classified. So. Yeah, I mean, the, the black budget in Department of Defense is huge. And that's that's part that probably a lot of Congress is not aware of. Uh, and don't they don't even want to be aware of it. It's just budgeted. It's just put away. It's hidden under all kinds of different layers. These are um, our $600 toilet seats and $2,000 hammers <laughs> that get purchased and the money goes goes somewhere else, I'm assuming. Well, in defense of $600 toilet seats, that's an average. And <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of preliminary work uh, to design that toilet seat. And then they, they didn't cost that much after that individually. Sure. There, uh, let's just say that there is a lot of overhead in the government and a huge amount of overhead. And um, that uh, basically you're just spinning your wheels and uh, you're using the bureaucracy and uh, uh, all that gets spent. And but ultimately you might get something worthwhile out of it or you don't. Uh, we tend to hide our failures and there are quite a few of those. Um, but um, then you have an agency like NASA just just to go off in a different angle. Sure. NASA is uh, uh, let me tell you when I worked for the, I worked for the Department of Defense for about 15 years including active duty 6 years and about 9 years um, with the uh, Army Missile Command and uh, also the uh, over in uh, in Germany uh, with the Army Training Command over there which was basically we were training we're training armored units to do basically what the Ukrainians are doing to the Russians right now. Yeah. So uh, we were, we were getting ready. Um, but when I, when I transferred over to NASA, it was, uh, the difference was startling to me. It took me a while. I almost decided not, I didn't want to work for NASA. It was so different. What, um, what, what, what was, what was different about it? Well, one was of course, uh, NASA is supposed to be, an agency that develops technology that is available for everyone uh, by charter. Uh, so when something is invented at NASA, a new kind of rocket engine and so on, it's uh, theoretically available to the world. Um, unless it comes to NASA through the Department of Defense side, then there's all kinds of different layers of confidentiality about that. So, um, if, so if NASA invents a, uh, for example, in a very sophomoric explanation, like if, if NASA invents a new type of microwave oven to be used specifically in low Earth orbit, microgravity with new technology and new waveguides and things like that, that would be immediately accessible to commercial enterprise back here on Earth? Yeah, it's supposed to be. I mean, that's what NASA is supposed to do. It's a civilian agency that's for the development of um, spaceflight 
for everyone. And that's the way the charter was set up. But it wasn't that so much as it was more or less the laissez-faire of uh, meeting deadlines. Um, in the Department of Defense, you lay out a schedule and you've got some brigadier major general in charge of this schedule. And it's got little milestones all over it that you're going to produce this thing at the other end. Sure. And when you have meetings and you stand up and you say, I can't meet that milestone, I'm going to slip it. You're going to get yelled at. Yeah. And, um, uh, and that includes the contractor. NASA, not so much. <laughs> I was stunned, you know, at one of the very first meetings where the, the contractors came in and they were all just slipping their milestones off to the right there. And somebody laughed and said, yeah, we've never, uh, we've never failed to meet uh, a redesigned schedule. And it's like, what? I, I can't believe it. You know, but they were, they were so laid back uh, about it, but they were. Uh, and so why is this? Is this out of design like or base launch is... system sliding out forever? And uh, uh, the shuttle slid out for many, many years. Part mm -hmm. of that, of course, is the constrained budgets that NASA has compared to DOD. Okay. Um, DOD spends as much in a day as NASA does all year long. So uh, NASA wow. is actually, um, despite its um, wonderful uh, PR, is actually a tiny little agency within the vast scope of the federal uh, bureaucracy. It um, punches way above its weight, don't get me wrong, um, in terms of what people think uh, that's going on with NASA, but it's actually pretty small. It's very constrained in terms of its budget. And I can tell you this, when if you want to flip back to the, to the UFO um, uh, phenomena is that NASA avoids that like the plague. It wants nothing to do <laughs> with that whatsoever. Uh, it, it considers it a distraction and it'll go out. It's gone out of its way not to look for life. Uh, really? In the and solar system. Is, so. is, is that because of a stigma or is that because they, they, I, I, I wouldn't understand why that they wouldn't want to look for life because it's been made fun of for so many years. So and it's, it's so stigma it, based. You know, it's, it's a joke. It's a, uh, it's a punchline for a comedy, a comedian. Uh, so NASA doesn't want anything. It, it doesn't want to be tied uh, in any way to the, the UFO phenomena. Well, let me uh, ask you this, so, Mr. Hickam with, with NASA's uh, uh, directive of providing uh, science and technology to the public at large and with their primarily being the only game in town, as far as, as space is concerned with all of their technology, with all of their equipment, with all of their sensors that they have out there, you would expect that they have something, whether or not they want to study it, would they not be willing and, and able and ready because it's not a DOD project and it is a NASA project, would they not be able to offshoot that data that they've collected over the last 50 years to a civilian organization such as UAPX so that we would be able to have access to it and do the dirty work and do the analysis and, and do what NASA doesn't want to do? I don't think so. I don't think they want to have anything to do with it. Um, they would stay as far, as far away from it as they conceivably can. Um, you'll notice that, um, I mean, since 1976, uh, when we had the Viking project where we actually look for life on Mars, for instance, there's been nothing since uh, that NASA sent up to look for life on Mars or any other planet. 
Um, and so again, it, um, uh, well, I can go back uh, historically and s s tell you part of it. Part of it was when we went to the moon, NASA was, was charged to go to the moon and carry people to the moon. And they did carry people to the moon, but almost immediately people lost interest in it. There wasn't anything there. It just looked dead. And, right. and uh, you know, like the high desert uh, times a thousand. And, and um, so they, uh, the, NASA was basically told, we don't want you to do this anymore. We want you to make, go oh, space flight uh, cheap. That's it. We're going to let you build the shuttle. And um, also, by the way, uh, space is, is uh, we don't care anything about space. We really just want you to look at our planet. So you saw NASA just flip itself on its head and it with Skylab and everything else, it was like everything was, well, there was a telescope to look at the sun, but otherwise it was all about looking back down at earth. And so for many, many years, that's what NASA was doing was just looking back down at earth. In a way that's, still what it's doing with the International Space Station. There's not a telescope on the International Space Station to look out at all. Everything is looking down and worrying about climate change and all this kind of things, which are good things to worry about. Sure. Uh, but in terms of, uh, I mean, NASA almost has to be for, had to be forced to go back to the moon. Uh, in 1993, I mean, I've always been a moon guy. In 1993, I, worked, I wrote the technical manual on how we could go back to the moon. I was uh shocked that they actually allowed me to publish it as a NASA TM uh, tech manual because everyone that I talked to from headquarters down to Houston and everywhere else said, Homer, you need to forget this. It's not good for your career to be talking about the moon. We're not going back to the moon. Um, we're going to fly the shuttle forever. We're going to build this international space station because that's a good thing to do with the Russians um uh to keep them on our side but uh, we're not going back to the moon so uh there was really no movement at all within nasa to to leave low earth orbit and looking down at the earth uh until vice president pence came along who by the way read rocket boys and loved it and then read a, a novel that i wrote called back to the moon and next thing i knew i was talking on the phone to uh, mike pence who is saying, Homer, what should, what do you think we ought to do? And of course I'm going, uh, uh, I'm saying, well, we need to go to the moon. We, we need to go there. And again, I, I go back to my West Virginia roots. I want to see mining towns on the moon. That's what I would like to see. And he liked that idea. And so he came down here to Huntsville uh, where I live and um, said we were going back by 2024. Well, that's, uh, that's been slipped NASA again, sure. push it off to the right. And now they're talking about, well, we're just going to the moon to practice to go to Mars, which is, is silly because there are zero plans uh, or budget for NASA to carry humans to Mars. And so that's not going to happen. But um, uh, I, hate to, I, hate to, I hate to belittle that idea because it's a great idea. And I think maybe somebody like Elon Musk might do it because it's his money. Yeah. And he might, he might just do it. But so I just you don't see NASA doing it at all. When you wanted to go back to the moon and still want to go back to the moon and you, yes. you invoked the, the image of, of mining the moon, yeah. what would be the benefit to humanity in doing so? Well, I, if this would truly open up space, I don't think we're going to truly open up the, the solar system until we have a really good reason to do it. And um, besides science and exploration, all well and good, but, um, uh, but if it's like we're spending 
money from the federal budget to go do this and nothing is coming back to us, right? then it's interesting and we will do it to a certain extent, but we're not going to go crazy over it. So um, if I think the moon is filled with, with resources and all the indications are that there are a lot of uh, rare earth elements on the moon that we uh, may need. Of course, we always talk about helium three possible mm -hmm. fuel for fusion reactors and so on. We really don't know. Uh, beneath ever, every crater is an asteroid, uh, which is, you know, uh, laced with all kinds of different minerals that we not, might need. So the moon to me is sort of like New England was back in the 1600s. We're not exactly sure what's there. It might be a good place to go. We need to go look, you know. Sure. And uh, so uh, what we need, I think, on the moon, what NASA should do is a federal agency. It's just like we used to build uh, forts out in the, in the West. You, you build these outposts and then the pioneers come and they outfit themselves. They get ready and then they go out to the hinterlands to see uh, what's what's out there. Uh, so that's why I, I, I think that NASA uh, or some federal agency or a number of governments together could build one outpost, at least one permanently human crewed outpost on the moon from which then commercial entities and other entities could stage there and go out. And let's just look at this, this near neighbor of ours, this little planetoid that just happens to be going around the, our planet. And let's just see what's there. And it's relatively easy to get to. And it's very possible that that would create um, a, a commerce and space. And we start bringing stuff back that, uh, that would be worth something. You know, I, I personally think a moon rock is worth something, just a rock. Uh, if you stop to think about it, uh, uh, diamonds, the, the world is filled with diamonds, tons sure. of diamonds, but yet they're, we, we call them rare when they're really not. And because we've convinced everybody that when you get married, you're supposed to give your girl a diamond. And so, you know, and, and it's, it's a sign of wealth. Well, what could be, what could be a greater sign of love and devotion and wealth than having a moon rock? I mean, just a moon rock <laughs> is worth a lot of money. That's brilliant. You uh, need so to get the beers as marketing. Uh, I do see commerce occurring. Or that's what I push for. Let's get commerce going on the moon, and then we can see about um, the other planets. But uh, coming back to my New New England analogy, I always, you know, NASA keeps talking about moon to Mars. It's like... <sighs> It's like the pilgrims using New England as a practice area to go to Antarctica. It's a, it's a way that I look at that. <laughs> it it's just fair. doesn't make sense. It just it doesn't pass any kind of smell test to me. So why are they marketing it in that way? Um, well, well, I, I I would blame my buddy Mike Pence to, for that to a certain extent, and he didn't. Um, he really he he came up with a great idea. Let's go back to the moon. We're going to land on the moon, and we're we're going to redo that uh, uh, better than Apollo this time. But he didn't his uh, his uh, office didn't do the necessary work with Congress and the president um, to explain to them how important going back to the moon was, and not this the shimmera. This, this bright little bauble that started with a crazy billionaire back in the early 1900s called uh, Dr. Lowell, mm -hmm. um, that, um, that Mars was a place that we really wanted to go. So the next thing you knew, before the vice president almost had his speech 
out of his mouth, we had President Trump saying, why are we going to the moon? We need to go to Mars. We've been to the moon. And then Congress comes on top of that. And uh, so it kind of uh, messed us up. And now we have Artemis, which is, they say, well, we're going to the moon so we can go to Mars, which is not true, but it sounds good. So there you go. Fair enough. But the end goal is getting back to the moon. To me, that should be that should be the goal. That was to me. If we could spend the next quarter century um, developing the moon, and uh, without worrying about Mars, we got robots on Mars that do great. And uh, I'd also look at you know if you're really thinking about carrying humans somewhere else, why Mars? I mean, there's some even better places, uh, Titan, for instance, and so on that uh, that to me are are more interesting. Uh, yeah. uh, in terms of perhaps human habitation eventually. But, um, but you know, you, you just, uh, what was it that um, some NASA engineer said back during the Apollo days after they canceled it? Well, we just drank the wine they gave us and that was it. And uh, we, <laughs> we went on our merry way. So, um, so yeah, it's, um, uh, I have great hope for, uh, for folks like uh, Elon and, and so on that, uh, I just love that idea of uh, of a billionaire uh, deciding to spend all his money to carry people to Mars. That's great. Do it. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, know, that's yeah. the way I look at it. And we'll use all that technology that you develop for other things as we need it. So that's great. So go- going back to this this idea that NASA looks down instead of looking up, I this is the I, I think I've known it but this is the only time that I've actually heard it vocalized. And it, to me, it's shocking because, you know, I was, I was born in the seventies, uh, grew up in the eighties watching the space shuttle. I was absolutely enamored with the idea of the United States being the country that could, uh, get humanity to space and, you know, everything from the worm logo from NASA to their, their, you know, their iconic Starfield background, it all pointed upwards to me. And, and to hear that that's not what NASA wants to do, do you think that this is kind of a, a remnant of maybe the old guard and, and hopefully with the next coming generation of administrators and, and scientists working at NASA that they'll shift their gaze from their feet to their head? Yeah, I think uh, as a new generation comes along, um, they they are not held back by the past like the folks up in headquarters at NASA are right now, um, and that's one of the reasons why I love working over at uh, Space Camp and being on the board over there is that in a lot of ways um, since uh, it used to be well, we used to say that we were going to train space campers like like NASA trains the astronauts and we did that it was it was a pretty simple thing mm-hmm. they were just flying the sh- so we would we would train them on everything having to do with the shuttle, just like the astronauts and now going up the International Space Station. That's pretty simple. But what is beyond that is not going to be simple. It is, we're not exactly sure um, what spacecraft are going to carry us to the moon. And uh, I mean, we we hear what NASA says, but we're not really that sure that that's the way we're actually going to do it or go to Mars or anywhere else. So. With that knowledge or lack of knowledge of exactly what the future holds, we can train the kids over at Space Camp in any way that we want to. And if we want to put into their heads, you know what we really need to do is to create an outpost on the moon first. 
then uh, maybe that's what uh, the the people who ultimately end up at headquarters in NASA will want to do. So the uh, space so, so, we, kind of so we really want, and that's what we're doing. We have a brand new planetarium over there, so we're we're training these young people to look out, to to look skyward, to see what what can be done in that direction. Um, while there's still, of course, this huge impetus to look back on the earth because of climate change and all of that stuff. Um, so, so, you know, NASA's kind of pulled in, in several different directions. And we also have a, a real need to uh, educate people who are in Congress. So uh, mm-hmm. we have, I think, about eight astronauts now that, that went through space camp. I look, I'm looking for our uh, co- the number of Congress people <laughs> that we send through space camp. And also I'd love to see a president that graduated from, uh, from space camp. Then we're going to make some progress. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so, so space camp itself is not, I, I have to be honest. I, I haven't known a lot about space camp. I saw that movie back in the late eighties, early nineties, where the kids, you know, accidentally launched themselves on the shuttle and things like that. Right. And that was really my only understanding of space camp. But you're saying that, that space camp is not necessarily just a camp for kids, but it's also an early intervention program, I guess you could say for the training and the molding of ideas for people who you hope, end up working at NASA. Yeah, I mean, not only do we want to uh, teach the kids the history of spaceflight and have them look at all the old rockets and so on, we also want to give them a vision of what we will do and what we can do next and perhaps what we should do and get them start thinking down uh, down that track. So Space Camp is uh, loaded with simulators that simulate, of course, the spacecraft craft that now exists. Um, and, uh, we have the underwater astronaut trainer that, uh, I was part of designing way back in the 1980s, uh, where they can get an idea of what it's like to work in microgravity and so on. So there are a lot of very sophisticated simulators, uh, but there are also a lot of very knowledgeable educators at, uh, at space camp that are, and, and with wonderful brand new state of the art, uh, planetarium where we can start the kids thinking about what is out there and get them knowledgeable really of what is, what is out there. What is Mars really like? What is Venus really like? What is the moon really like? How big is the solar system? What does it take to actually traverse all these vast uh, distances? And uh, what are you likely to find there? What do you want to find there? Uh, So there, so in that week that we have these, these kids, um, we hope to, uh, to educate them on, the historical past of spaceflight, but also the possibilities of the future. Is there an active program or an active directive within space camp that tries to attack the stigma that you mentioned before that the current NASA administration is, is looking down because of, they don't want to acknowledge that UAP or, or UFO could potentially be real is, is space camp putting the idea in the kids' heads that this is something that they may want to consider as a, as an option. Well, the kids can ask any question that they want, and um, uh, we don't actively teach uh, that there. Um, uh, but um, of course, they've seen Discovery Channel and all the other channels, and so sure. on, where all this is is uh, discussed. And uh, quite often, they'll ask about it. And um, 
and so uh, I, I'm not involved in every class. Uh, mostly I, I go out and talk to the teachers and I, I, I don't think I've ever had any teachers really ask me about uh, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena or anything like that. They're mostly interested in what, what can I, what can I take back to my classroom to stimulate my kids, to make them uh, think about space flight. So sure. it's a very, if it's talked about at all, it's probably over at the planetarium and, um, that would be a question asked, and uh, uh, but what the, what the answer is exactly by the uh, whoever is leading the discussion that day is kind of up to them. We don't we don't we don't keep them from talking about it. Let's say. Well, let me ask you this: if if a child came to you during one of these classes and said, "Mr. Hickam, do aliens exist?" How would you answer that question? Well, I'd probably take them back. Um, let me just say. How, how would I answer it would be, I, I'd probably start stuttering like I am right now because, because I have a billion thoughts about it. And, uh, but I would, um, I would say that anything is possible, but if you want to look at, if you want to get into statistics and odds, the odds of intelligent aliens visiting the earth is vanishingly small. Okay. I hate to say that. I, you know, mm -hmm. I really wish it was true, but but that's because of my more recent interest in paleontology, and I've been doing that for the last twenty years, and that that starts to get me thinking about time. Uh, so it's wonderful to think that there might be a, a universe like Star Trek where we have a lot of people living on different planets that are around different star systems that look a lot like us, except they've got little things glued to their forehead. Sure. Um, when we stop to think about that the earth is around four and a half billion years old. Mm -hmm. And for the first 2 billion of that, their only thing that there was, was bacteria. Yes. So half of the lifespan of our planet, there's been only one-celled animals. And it's only been in the last half billion years or so that those, that bacteria got together and started creating complex creatures mm -hmm. that lived and died and ate each other and all that kind of thing. And, all to, and you have to look at all the different extinctions and the fact that we've got a moon that goes around the planet just at the right place, which causes the tides to go back and forth and for, <laughs> for different ecosystems to be developed. Sure. You look at all, the fact that we exist, the odds of us existing is vanishingly small. So how do we extrapolate that to the trillions of planets that are probably out there is uh, you've also got to factor in time. Yeah. Um, and the odds of, of us existing as versus all of those. So it's all vanishingly small, which doesn't mean that it's not true. But it only and takes it, one. It could be. So I'm, I'm very cautious about it, except to say that it's unlikely. But there, there is phenomena that's unexplained. You know, ghosts are unexplained. But we certainly have a lot of people who believe in them and can give you all kinds of evidence that they exist. So, so this really gets at, it is a phenomena and it's one that I don't think anybody, I mean, you can believe it to be true. Mm -hmm. Good, great, believe it all day long. That doesn't mean that it's true, it might be. So, 
that's why I stutter when somebody asks me <laughs> that question. No, that's 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 a wonderfully open and honest answer, and I appreciate that. Um, during your time, either in the military or at NASA, has anything ever come across your desk that would cause you to reevaluate the statement that you just told me? Something that to you looked as if this was not definitive, but nearly tan tangible proof that something is out there. No, <laughs> that, that's the honest, let, let me tell you, astronauts, if they see anything mm -hmm. are loathe to report it. What about people um, like Edgar Mitchell who, who have come out and said that it's, it's there and he's seen it and he's experienced it. He's an outlier. And, um, basically, uh, NASA went out of its way to ignore anything that, that, uh, Dr. Mitchell had to say about that subject. Uh, so, uh, again, I mean, it's pretty, it was very brave of him to, to, to say that, um, I, you know, it really, um, I mean, we knew so little, when we first started going into space that there were so many possibilities that you may remember that John Glenn reported fireflies yes. in orbit. And yes. a lot of people thought, Oh my gosh, the, the solar system is teeming with life so much that when we, as soon as we go into orbit, we start swatting away fireflies. Right. <laughs> it, it turned out to be urine crystals. And so uh, from, from his own ejecta <laughs> out into space. So, um, so I think ever since then, because that became such a, it just blew up in NASA's face and they were, they just hated to have to tell them that their hero was totally uh, uh, wrong about it, that ever since astronauts have tended, if they look out there and maybe see something, they might just avert their eyes. They're not, they don't want, really want to see it. So, so you seem, you, you strike me as somebody that looks at data and factual evidence and has the ability to compartmentalize that compared to potential personal beliefs or personal experiences. So you've talked about the data and, and the statistical probabilities. What is your personal belief? Well, um, my, my personal hope is that the universe is teeming with life. That's my personal hope. And as far as I can say in terms of hope versus belief, I have no belief, I have no information or data in front of me that's been presented to me that would make me believe it yet. Uh, but we may see it coming. Uh, with the, if the Webb telescope is, um, mm -hmm. is successful, I mean, but again, uh, uh, I mean, the Webb can possibly see planets that look a lot like Earth. Yes. And that's very important, but you got to realize the web is looking out across eons of time. Yes. So that's the way that planet looked eons and eons and eons ago. So what does it look like now? We don't know. We, we don't know. And that's our problem is that we're, we're, we're dealing with these vast distances and also um, these vast amounts of time, which, but you know, to me, that doesn't really, denigrate in any way this discussion it's fascinating when we stop to think about that we do exist though it's vanishingly small statistically that we would be able to exist and have a brain 
and a, uh, a, a background that makes us want to go outward to explore and so on. Um, so, so it's out there. So this, and when you look out the numbers, you start crunching the numbers, how many possible planets could be, could have life on them, then how many could actually develop something like a human and then develop a spacecraft and blah, blah. So, you know, that's, that's where you start crunching the numbers and they become so, so huge that you almost lose interest in the statistics and go back to, but what if it's true? (laughs) Right, right. Well, it really has happened. And also you have to start thinking of, I'm sorry, the supernatural. I mean, perhaps there is a, 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 I hate to say force, you start getting into Star Wars there, there, but there may be a force in the universe that wants to bring us all together, that wants to, to is proud of the life that has been created and wants a greater life to be created, a greater system of civilization to be created there there are so many unknowns that we just don't know we only have the ability to see things smell things and hear things through very very limited um, uh, sure. uh, brain and so there are just so many things that we are probably missing in terms of time and distance and and um or even the ability to measure our direct reality but we we may not yeah. be able to process what is right in front of us yeah, I mean, you know, um, there there's some evidence. If you start reading about time, you almost get frustrated uh, because um, time seems to be a, uh, not real. It's a it's a construct. It's um, we this is not really happening. <laughs> What's happening is it's uh, it's a lot of uh, of uh, just uh, dots, uh, pixels happening, occurring somehow, and kind of conglomerating yeah. together in our brain. But but then I say that and I, and I go, but wait a minute, if that's true, then how come I go out to Montana and I find these fossils from 65 million years ago? So are you just telling me that time is just right now and it ceases to exist and it, there's nothing forward to that? It's just right now. But wait a minute. It, why is all this evidence of all the time that has passed? It's this evidence that you can put your hands on. So it's really fun to think about. And I do think about it a lot when I'm sitting out there all covered with sweat and dust and dirt and nasty and everything. And I've picked up a, just picked up a T-Rex tooth. It's really fun to sit there and contemplate that tooth and go, you know, what's the odds that after 65 million years, I, Homer Hickam, just happened to wander down this canyon and pick you up. you know it it, it kind of comes to the idea that you know statistics may be just purely invalidated uh because you know like dr matthew shadagas in our chat is saying that you know you you just need some tidal pools amino acids and a couple of billion years and and bingo you have life so it it might well maybe we have one example (laughs) and again you have to look that certain extinctions had to happen at certain times we also had to have a long period where not much happened except plant growth, mm-hmm. the Carboniferous era. That had to occur before we started getting more complicated life forms. So what did that create? It created coal mm-hmm. and natural gas and all of that. And if, we, if that period had not occurred, then flash forward 400 million years to... West Virginia, 
we would not have been able to dig down and bring up that nasty black stuff, which, by the way, fueled our civilization as it exists today. We would not have had that. So certain things have to happen. And uh, in a planet, again, the odds are vanishingly small that all that's going to come together. But that's as we know it. Maybe there are other ways that life can be formed and other ways that life might be thinking, which is one of the reasons that I I often come back to thinking about UFOs and UAPs was um, that, and we're always, we're just like, why do they do what they do? It doesn't make any sense. Well, guess what? They don't think like we do. <laughs> yeah, we can't, we can't ascribe. <laughs> they, human it may be just totally different to them. They're not yeah. rational human beings. Yeah, we, we, we can't ascribe emotion so, or, or logic or thought processing to them as we do to us because they're not us. They may not even see us. This is true. You know? Uh, and so we just don't know. And that's why I come back to ask me the question, do I believe in it? Eh, I hope it's true, but I have no, uh, I have nothing in front of me that's been presented to me other than some pictures, uh, which are interesting uh, and curious um, to make me believe in them uh, any more than I believe in ghosts, which seems to be true. I cer- my mother certainly believed <laughs> in ghosts. Uh, she was sure that they existed and uh, told me stories about about seeing them. So what are they? And so there there's so much unexplained, uh, Jeremy, in the universe. But that's what kind of makes it fun, you know, in a lot of ways. That tremendous. Thank goodness that we don't know everything. Yes. Uh, I mean, how boring would that be? Really? Have you yourself? ever had any experience or or sighting that challenges your your hold on the vanishingly small statistically possible scenarios well you know you know it was back in colwood west virginia and so uh it was right before the russians launched sputnik so i wasn't really thinking about this that much um that but i was aware of ufos i mean back in the 1950s it was kind of a hot topic you heard about it a lot um and uh i was coming home from choir practice at night on my bicycle coming up that narrow valley when all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye i saw this um a number of lights come up over the top of the mountain which by the way there are a lot of power lines around there come up over the top of the mountain and come swooping down into our little valley and right in front of me. And I looked up and I could see the superstructure. I can see it today. I can see the, the, the crosshatching of, of whatever was underneath this thing with the lights. And I could see some pale lights back behind there and then some lights that ran along what seemed to be an edge. And it, just moved smoothly right up and then disappeared. And what could that have possibly been? I have no idea. Certainly not a helicopter. No helicopter is going to, in the first place, you would hear a helicopter and as close as that was to me, it would have blown my hat off for sure. Um, But um, I have no explanation whatsoever for that until this day. I was, when I got home, I just remember 
being kind of shaky about the whole thing. And um, I started to tell my mom, but I just couldn't quite bring myself to tell her. So I didn't tell her or tell anybody much. Probably told some of my friends um, who then proceeded to tell me ghost stories, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I've never been able to explain that in my in my rational thoughts. What that possibly? And, and what year what year was this? That would have been around 1956. So, wow! And there were a number were, of sightings, if you remember, in West Virginia um, yeah. in the 1950s of UFOs and strange creatures and so the on. The Mothman. So the Mothman. Yeah, Mothman was one of them. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. So you. So you're a person who has actually had a, a physical sighting directly in front of you that you to this day, you know, 50, 60 years later have, have not been able to quantify, but at the same time, you are so determined to see tangible, hard coded proof that you're able to separate the experience from from what we have in front of us, what we're able to see and feel and touch and, and read about and, and understand that you've been able to separate the incidents apart from each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, if you, if you, if you get someone <clears throat> who is impressionable and uh, I mean, this happens with the police interrogations all the time. Unfortunately, if you get somebody that's impressionable and you are forceful enough to them, you can make them believe that any, almost anything happened, including yes. they murdered somebody, yes. right? Yes. So absolutely. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit careful. I was a big science fiction reader back then. I was very impressionable. Maybe I didn't see what I thought I saw, but it's certainly, um, it, it certainly has stuck with me all these years. And it seemed to be something that was crafted, not anything natural. Again, I can see the bracing, you know, what creature invents bracing for a craft sure. that flies, except for one that has some technology. Uh, so, so I don't know. So uh, earlier you said, and, and we were talking about the, the act of camouflage, you said that this would be something that would be roughly a hundred years more advanced than what the civilians have access to now. Um, do you think that it is hundred years more advanced from today's date or that it, could have been a hundred years more advanced from 1956. Well, um, well, you know, a uh, hundred years. Well, what I'm, I guess what I'm really saying when I say a hundred years is that you're talking about 20 or 30 years uh, in the future. That's what you, you mentioned first mm -hmm. was you just extrapolate for what you know. And I, I, I'm suggesting that maybe there is something beyond what is known that's actually would look like something maybe you'd have in the 22nd century rather than the 21st. Gotcha. Uh, that's okay. all I'm saying. Yeah. So there's, there's nothing that you could come up with uh, either that you're free to speak about or that you can't speak about that would explain the 1956 sighting that you had. No, it definitely falls into the category of a UFO. It's an unidentified flying object, uh, an, un, uh, you know, an aerial phenomena that, can't that's unexplained um but again um there there have been these just these myriad of uh, reports yeah and we all st we start all start breaking them down again we have this mind that's kind of rational and how can we explain all this and of course we come up well well maybe 
maybe um, we have the technology that we're keeping secret and mm -hmm. it just occasionally shows up and that's certainly a possibility or and then we go to the other extreme that this is some alien technology that's come in from the outside um so it's like okay one or the other and uh so it, it um uh but um if if we have if this technology uh, exists um we've done a rotten job of keeping it secret. Let's, let's put it that way. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So your work with NASA during the, uh, the formative period of the international space station, you, you have a lot of ideas and insights and, and how we are, where we are now um, using current events with our tenuous situation that we have with Russia and our former heavy reliance on using Russia for our only means of, of space travel and the Russian threats of, of deorbiting the ISS and, and things like that. What did we do right? What did we do wrong? And how can we save the ISS from this deteriorating relationship that we have with Russia? And do we want to save the ISS? Well, uh, let's go back to what we did right. I think it was, uh, you got to realize that Ronald Reagan, President Reagan started Space Station Freedom, which we were cutting uh, metal and uh, planning on having a space station called Space Station Freedom. Uh, in, uh, but it was really kind of languishing in Congress. Congress was never really enthusiastic about it. It was, you know, uh, stop start type of uh, funding and we weren't sure it was going to happen. So uh, Vice President Al Gore was very, very smart to tie that uh, to international relationships, especially the Russians, uh, because after the Soviet Union fell, there were a lot of unemployed Russian engineers who needed work and the fear was that they would go to North Korea or Iran or, or our other enemies and so that was a that was a right thing to do in terms if we were ever going to have a space station, the best way to do it would be to bring in uh, the internationals, especially the Russians. Uh, Congress could see sense in that. Uh, so Congress at, at the time, frankly, cared zip about space and neither did the president, any of the presidents, really. And they were just kind of, because they, we were expected to have a, spro a space program, they were just kind of um, easing it along. We had the space shuttle. We just keep flying the space shuttle. That's all we were going to do. Yeah. Uh, and then the Hubble Space Telescope, little things. I mean, they're big things. They cost a lot of money, but they're, they're little things in the great scheme of things, if you will. And so the idea that we could work with the Russians and have our own, uh, have a space station with them was a really, really good idea in terms of getting support from, uh, from Congress. It also, we also needed um, uh, experience that the Russians had, and that was in, t in terms of long endurance spaceflight, uh, which we did not have uh, for humans in, in microgravity. Um, and also just the operation of a space station. We, we didn't have much experience in that. So the Russians had that in spades. And so it was a good idea to combine our capability. We also got to remember that we also had the space of uh, the, 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 the shuttle tragedy challenger 
And up to then, all American spacecraft were supposed to be flown on the shuttle. But after that, that all dropped away, which left us with shuttles with really not much to do. And so um, now we, we had this fleet of shuttles and we had a uh, international space station and the shuttle turned out to be the best vehicle ever, a little expensive, but the best vehicle ever to build a space station with. After we had built the space station, then we really didn't need the shuttles and, and you saw that they got thrown away and there wasn't any great consternation with the idea that we have this gap where we had no capability of getting humans into space. Again, you scratch Congress and they don't really care that much about human spaceflight. So we were, they were willing to let us have this gap um, until, thank goodness, uh, somebody like SpaceX came along. And, um, and even though we had this, uh, the idea of having a commercial funding of commercial spacecraft there, it was not known whether any, any, uh, commercial company was willing to put up their own money to do this or not. Mm -hmm. So Elon really saved our American space program and in so many ways, but we had that long gap where we were totally dependent on the Russians. Now, do we need the international space station? Uh, we might, if we, if we're, if Artemis turns out to be a bust and SLS doesn't work as advertised, and or a lot of different things. If we don't have the International Space Station, we've got no place to go. Right. And that's one of the reasons that we see NASA pushing it out till 2030, which is way past its uh, uh, the lifespan planned for it and probably uh, makes sense to have it. Um, it's because they're afraid Artemis is going to not work and we're going to end up, uh, that's it, we got to have some place for our astronauts to go. Uh, so... But um, in terms of the Russians, we don't really need them on the space station. Uh, I would hate to see, I'd hate to see a total breakdown of that uh, partnership. Uh, but I'm as irritated with the Russians as anybody else right now. And, sure. uh, you know, they're murdering women and children and everybody over in Ukraine. They don't deserve to be our partners. And I just soon lose them for right now. They need to be punished in some way. So, to kind of go back on on the the shuttle program, back in in the eighties and the early nineties, we relied one hundred percent on the space shuttle. We were launching satellites left and right. We were using the shuttle fleet not only to to launch these satellites, but also on these satellites, um, which signifies that satellites need maintenance and upkeep. After the shuttle program was shuttered, and we have dozens of NRO satellites, classified military satellites, things like that, how did we provide maintenance and upkeep on these satellites without the space shuttle program? Well, um, you got to realize the Air Force was never enamored with the space shuttle in the first place, and so they they didn't they were happy to to get taken off. <laughs> of the space shuttle after Challenger. And um, so they created a um, expendable launcher program that they much preferred, but they, they could call up and send into orbit uh, in, in much real, more real time than the shuttle, which was always delayed and also very much observable as to what it was doing and what it was carrying. There were, I don't know, about four, maybe five, DOD payloads carried by the shuttle that was kept halfway secret, but not really that much. Uh, 
Right. Uh, yeah, NASA leaks like a sieve when it comes to, to uh, intelligence and information. So they were ne- they were never really happy with that. And they were happy to go back to the extend expendable uh, launch system, and and they they would prefer they would really prefer not to work with NASA. Uh, truth is known. So there is a military space program that existed after the shuttle to oh. this day that is that is up and back and up and back. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I can point at one of them, the X-37. Sure. But that one, that's unmanned and robotic. I mean, a, a manned program. Uh, are, are you saying that we have manned missions from the military that the general public is, is unaware of? No. Um, again, uh, department of defense, and humans um, are just sacks of goo that are easy to kill. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a lot better. And that's where Department of Defense has put their money is in robotics and okay. the capability of doing a lot of things in space that it doesn't talk about um, that that is just not common knowledge. Sure. And so the uh, Department of Defense, uh, again, spends as much in a day as NASA does all year. And it has a great deal of capability. Could it put people in space? Oh, yeah, in a heartbeat. No problem. Uh, but it chooses not to because it, it doesn't really. Again, when you start putting humans in, humans talk, right. humans get killed. Uh, humans have to be explained why you're doing this. And um and so on, and that you might not come back. So Department of Defense is trying to get away from that as much as they possibly can. That's why we're seeing the drones being uh, so much more sophisticated yeah. and, uh, you know, the fighter uh, uh, jets in the future are all going to be, uh, uh, we won't, won't have crews aboard. It'll all be done remotely. Sure. Something like Neuralink. Yeah, something like that. Interesting. Interesting. So, and I had a, I had a thought that, uh, that I really wanted to ask you and it it has, it has vacated my brain. What, what to you is the most needed thing that the United States could do right now to advance humanity? Uh, Is it, is it Artemis? Is it going back to the moon? Like you said before, or what is, what is the technological advancement that we need to, to take this next step. Yeah. I, I just don't think that NASA has a clear idea of what it wants to do. And, you know, let's just talk about NASA because that's kind of the face of spaceflight for the United States, even though that's not where most of the money is spent and where most of the technology occurs. The fact is that, that NASA has to have a clear idea of what it wants to do. Mm-hmm. I don't think it does. Um, and there are a lot of different reasons for that about who gets appointed to be the administrators and, and so on. And they make studies all the time about what NASA should do in the next 10 years and 20 years. They always come back with the same, same old stuff. Sure. Uh, so to, to my mind is, is that um, if nothing else, let's just hang our head on commerce and, and maybe we can get a, a clearer idea on what we want to do in space if we say, okay, we're a society that thrives on commerce. We're a monetized society, whether we like it or not, where some people uh, don't like it, some do, but that's the way that 
that humans really work. I mean, there would not have yeah. been a Roman empire if there had not been commerce. That was the whole idea. <laughs> That's why we went out and conquered all these other countries was to bring whatever uh, resources they had back to Rome. I mean, sure. that's true for all civilizations. So let's hang our hat on commerce. All right, commerce. How are you going to make money? Don't make money on Mars. Not yet. Uh, but hey, my goodness, there's that big, big planetoid that's so close to us that seems to be loaded with resources. I wonder if we could go up there and develop that. Let's send some hardy pioneers. Let's build an outpost and send some hardy pioneers up there and just see. You never know. And oh, by the way, since Apollo, we've discovered that, hey, the moon's got a lot of water on it that uh, makes maybe maybe it's meant that we should go do that. So let's just focus on that. And 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 it, so somebody somewhere along the line in the federal government has to give NASA kind of that thought structure. That's why I, I get so uh, peeved at uh, at NASA and their moon to Mars junk. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Again, it's like pilgrims practicing in New England to go to the South Pole. It doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> you go to New England to live in New England. That's right. why you go there and develop its resources. So, uh, but we'll see. You know, I, I am a uh, optimistic kind of guy. And uh, uh, sometimes, well, was it Mark Twain that said, God looks after fools, drunks in the United States of America. And so yeah. maybe that's true for, for American well, space flight as well. Mr. Hickam, I've got a, a, a direct question for you on on two of them, actually, on behalf of UAPX. Um, as, as I'm sure you're aware, we, we are a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to studying the unidentified aerial phenomena. And we have encountered many, many roadblocks as far as the access to uh, information that we're looking for. We don't research historical cases. We go out and we collect our own data with our own equipment and our own personnel. Um, but quite often we look for corroborative data from ancillary third-party sources, such as, uh, you know, obviously we throw in Hail Marys at the NRO or the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and things like that. But as you're saying that NASA is looking down instead of looking up, they most likely have corroborative data that we're looking for yet even with their directive of being a public organization that shares science and information with the general public we are being denied on our FOIA requests we're being uh, countered and roadblocked and and everything that you can think of when we look for a specific time and date to corroborate some of the evidence that we've collected is there anything that Mr. Homer Hickam can do to point us in the right direction or or hold our hand, per se, to help us access the information that we're looking for from an agency with a directive of sharing science with the public? No. <laughs> Here, here's the thing. NASA, Department of Defense, all of them, NRO, all of them, will listen to Congress, and that's about it. Uh, so they are very reluctant to share anything that they may know about this um, with a private organization. Uh, the best you can do is to get a congressperson on your side to ask these questions yeah. and see if they, if they can 
I mean, we've had presidents. I can remember President Carter wanting to have the yeah. Pentagon. Tell me the truth about UFOs. They dodged and hedged <laughs> and did everything to not tell them. So if the president of the United States can't get the true answer, then what hope uh, do we have? So I think you're I think you're I think you're doing the right thing is to work around the edges, um, ask questions with as many folks as you can. Uh, talk to folks that have just recently retired from these organizations who might be willing to give you some, some, uh, some information that, uh, that they would have. Uh, so that's, you know, that I don't have, I don't have any, uh, any method of, of, helping you there. Really. Well, that's, that, that was, that was a Hail Mary that I had to, I had to <laughs> ask that. Um, and, and two other questions for you, sir. Uh, Dr. Shadagas is asking me to ask you uh, what your knowledge is about the Alpha Centauri laser nanoprobe plan for 2069. Is that something that you have any information on? I don't have anything on that. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I can tell you this, that um, there is um, uh, DARPA, is especially very interested in uh, nuclear thermal rocket engines mm-hmm. and is spending quite a bit of money on it. This goes all the way back to the Orion program, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it's beyond that. The, the technology has improved vastly since, uh, since that time. So there's a reason why they're looking at this advanced propulsion system. And this is defense advanced research program. Yes. Uh, so... You can extrapolate from that, uh, as I have, that um, that there's a portion of the federal government that is looking beyond what what we see, and they're not making a big deal out of it. I mean, it's it's in you can, if you look it up, it's in the popular literature, but most people don't look. Um, there's there's a movement to be able to get out uh, into the solar system in a big hurry. Uh, so that's of interest to me and I'm watching that very carefully. Interesting. Um, as far as UAPX is concerned, uh, with, with the limited amount of knowledge that you have on, on how we operate with, you know, spectroscopy and, and, uh, spectral imaging, uh, RF and radiation detection equipment, is there anything, any advice that you would give us as far as what to look for signature wise that may help us? not necessarily identify definitive alien existence, but to help us separate between domestic technology and what cannot be explained. Well, you know, uh, every year it's probably more difficult to separate what we're capable of and what we used to think as an alien technology. Yes. And, a big part of that was when we were able to take uh, humans out of the cockpit. And so now when you see devices being able to twist and turn and zip out of sight and so on, that would seem to be beyond the capability of any human pilot. Well, what does that tell you? There's no human. Uh, So, um, so, so yeah, I think that, um, it's, it will be increasingly difficult over the years to come to, to tell the difference, especially since so much of our, our defense um, agencies within our government operate with black budgets and yeah. in secret. So 
uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, but I think the truth ultimately prevails and uh, organizations like yours will at least get a glimpse of what, uh, of what the truth is in the, in the very near years. Well, I, I know you're a very busy man. I would be remiss by, uh, by not extending an offer of, of you to entertain the, uh, the option of, of joining UAPX and potentially sitting on our board and, and helping to hold our hand uh, when and where it's necessary. Uh, um, obviously, that would be a discussion for another time, but it's, a, it's an open invitation to have that discussion. And as well, uh, UAPX will, will be presenting with the SCU, the Scientific Coalition for uh, uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Studies, uh, in your hometown of Huntsville, Alabama, in uh, the first week of June. And uh, I would like to extend an, an open invitation for you to join uh, Dr. Shadagas, Dr. Knuth, and, and Gary Voorhees and, and some of the other team members there at the conference and uh, have a meet and greet and, and see, uh, see what type of partnerships might be able to uh, be forged out of that. Well, thank you, Jeremy. I will, I will look forward to that. And uh, so I'm glad that you're coming to Huntsville and uh, hope you make it out also to the Space and Rocket Center and... Uh, tour our great museum out there and uh, look into the past as well as the, uh, as the future that we would, would absolutely love that. Future. Mr. Hickam, is there anything else that you would like to, to discuss? Uh, let me bring up the, uh, the link to your book again. And uh, if there's anything else that, that you want to talk about or discuss, uh, I know we're approaching the almost an hour and a half mark here and, and uh, I'll have to let you go shortly, but uh, wanted to open up the floor for, for anything that you wanted to talk about. Well, I, I just say that I really enjoy this type of discussion, Jeremy. I really do. I mean, it, it opens my thought processes as well. I mean, we all um, have our uh, personal day-to-day -day lives and, uh, and the things that happen around us that uh, are more mundane. It's really, really fun to talk to, uh, talk to you and uh, to others in that mindset and allow our minds to expand a little bit and share things. It's the best way to learn. Um, and I'm always interested in learning uh, new things. And uh, and hopefully if I have some knowledge to impart that or or um, or thoughts uh, along these lines. So I appreciate uh, our conversation today and I always appreciate conversations like this. I'm not afraid, as you have noticed, to tell you I don't know or no, I can't help you. I wish I could. Um, but ultimately, this is how we ferret out the truth is that we talk amongst ourselves and we we look out and we look for the truth and we're open to the truth, which Absolutely. is sometimes more difficult than anything is to be open to the truth and not ducking away from it. Especially if it goes against a preconceived idea that we've ingrained into our brains. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so um, uh, you don't get knowledge without uh, working working for it. Yes. Uh, it doesn't, it ever, it doesn't ever come easy. Neither. Well, knowledge may come a little bit easier than wisdom. Wisdom is the hardest thing to acquire. Absolutely but, true. Uh, but well, I'm so always you, seeking a little wisdom. <laughs> aren't we all, aren't we all? If you, uh, if you ever make it out to Las Vegas, please let me know. I would be honored to, uh, to take you out to dinner and, and have a, uh, a candid conversation over a beer or three. Sounds good to me, Jeremy.
All right. I and uh, I, I will be in touch. I want to have that discussion with you about, uh, about space camp and uh, have, uh, have some more discussions revolving around uh, potential cooperation between you and UAPX. If you are open to that idea. All right. Great. Well, thank you. All right, sir. Thank you very much, uh, folks. This has been Homer Hickam, uh, our very special guest tonight. And uh, anybody that has any questions, please feel free to email them and I will get them out to Mr. Hickam and, uh, and hopefully keep him engaged in this topic. Thank you very much. And uh, Mr. Hickam, I will be in touch. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Have a good day.